The good news of Numbers is in its opening chapters, we have narrated and even pictured for us, God dwells among sinners. It's a staggering truth. It's one that I don't think we're fully prepared for given the events of Genesis 3. When in Genesis 3, sinners are alienated from God. They are sent outside of Eden. And even when Israel is delivered from Egypt, the whole nation couldn't just ascend Mount Sinai to the top and meet with the Lord as Moses did. The fact that the Lord has drawn near to the Israelites in what's known as the tabernacle is an Edenic hope-giving event. It's a way of saying, hey, we're not in Eden, but the hope of Eden is not fully lost. God is drawing near to us, and we can have such hope in him. Uh, We noticed in Numbers chapter 2 that the tabernacle exists in the middle of Israel's camp. And near the end of our last uh, message together, we thought near the end of that time about how that's not just a geographical fact to observe, but it makes a theological point. The Lord is the center of Israel's life. They, they quite literally encamp around the Lord and travel and march with the Lord in the middle of the various camps that proceed out. And that is to make the larger point that even in Christ Jesus, we want to say as believers, God should be the center and the, the goal in pleasing and exalting him in what we do. Numbers chapter 2 is a geographical portrayal of that scene. The camp is surrounding the Lord's tabernacle. And then while in process toward the promised land, as they traveled, the Lord is in the middle of the march. So in the middle of the camp and in the middle of the march. And we come now to Numbers chapter 3, and we want to ask those same questions tonight that we've asked of chapter 1 and 2. Given that these opening chapters are doing a lot of counting for different reasons, what do we need to know about this chapter? Which isn't so much a narrative or prophecy or poetry. It is a a laying out in various tribal breakdowns or clan breakdowns, names, numbers. What do we need to know? Numbers chapter 3 is addressing the tribe that to this point has not been counted in the same way the others have. So in Numbers chapter 1, the warring tribes, which are everyone but Levi, those that were 20 years old and upward, the males from those tribes, would be able to fight in the battle of the conquest in the promised land. And then in Numbers chapter 2, there were tribes that were around the tabernacle. On the east, you have Issachar, Judah, and Zebulun. South, you've got Gad, Reuben, and Simeon. West, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. North, Asher, Dan, and Naphtali. So all of those tribes are there. But there has not been as much emphasis on the Levites. So the tribe of Levi is going to get attention in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. The sheer amount of space devoted to the tribe of Levi, two chapters, and tonight we'll look at one of these two, that should suggest to us, with word count alone, how important the role of this tribe is. Now, the tribe of Levi is not included in Numbers 1's warring males 20 and older census. And that's because the tribe of Levi is given a priestly or ministering role that will be highlighted tonight. In order to think about Numbers 3, a few, a few factors uh, that I want to put on the table. Um, first, we're going to need to remind ourselves in Numbers 3 of a little bit of genealogical history. 
Now, I like visual aids, and so on the board tonight, I've got a little bit of a, a, a genealogical graph for us so we can follow some descent. That's going to help us with Numbers chapter 3. The second thing to note is to remind ourselves of the shape of the tabernacle so that there are four sides where different Levite descendants are going to encamp. But then lastly, we need to remind ourselves um, of what some math is going to help us do. Some math is going to help us remember that there are males among the Levites and there are firstborn males among the larger Israelite tribes. Firstborn is an important term. It's going to play an important role in Exodus chapter 3. The role of firstborn, it's highlighted in Genesis where there is this firstborn son in a family line. And sometimes the conventions are, are reversed where the younger rather than the older can receive an unexpected blessing, such as Esau and Jacob or Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, There are some surprises that are in store in those ways. But in the ancient world, the firstborn had an important role. It was a, a role of leadership in the family. It was the first that would be able to enter into certain responsibilities in adulthood, a time of transition that the firstborn would have and embody more than the other siblings along the way. The firstborn would even be the majority heir of whatever estate was to be left. The role of the firstborn mattered. Israel is given this term in Exodus. And I need us to remember that. In Exodus 4.22, Moses is going to be sent to Pharaoh and God says, here's what I want you to tell Pharaoh. Let my firstborn son go. Now, who is God talking about when he says those words to Moses for Pharaoh? Well, Israel Israel is like a corporate son, but a corporate firstborn son. So we think of Israel as the firstborn. And then, on an individual level, firstborn has some interesting play in Exodus 2. Not chapter 2. Exodus also. T-O-O. So in Exodus 2, or also, we have the plague, the tenth plague, that will fall among the Egyptians, and their firstborn sons in the homes will die, and the Israelite firstborn sons will be spared or redeemed, if you will, if they have their doorposts and lintel covered by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, And I'm reminding us all this to say there has been a redemption of the firstborn son. God has redeemed them, and Israel as his firstborn belongs to him. So on some both large and micro levels, firstborn has been a term used. Now, Numbers chapter 3 is a setting apart in a, in a, if you will, climactic kind of way of the tribe of Levi in place of all of the firstborn of the tribes. Here's the way I want us to think about it. The Israelites belong to the Lord as a nation. To symbolize that, the firstborn of all the tribes of Israel belong to God. It's a way of representing the larger nation. And yet, only the Levite priests will serve at the tabernacle. And so if, if all the firstborn sons belong to God, a way that the Levites will belong to God on their behalf is a one-to-one correspondence. They're going to count up all the firstborn males of Israel's tribes that aren't of Levi and get a number. And then say, how many Levites do we have? One male for each of those firstborn. And so it's as if the Israelite tribe of Levi will now stand in the place and be the mediating tribe on behalf of all Israel. So just to reiterate, in Exodus, 
God redeems all the firstborn from among the Israelite tribes. And now the tribe of Levi will replace all of those individual firstborn. They will be, if you will, the mediating tribe. And Numbers chapter 3 gives us that. So we need to know a few things. A little genealogical history. The reminder of the shape of the tabernacle that's got sides where people will be encamped. And then this interesting feature of the firstborn. Why will that matter? Okay, so... Let's begin together uh, with some of this text. In chapter 3, beginning in verses 1 to 5, we'll see together, verses 1 to 4, the sons of Aaron. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of Aaron, their father. Now verses 1 to 4 will give us some genealogical information. I've got that here with Aaron's four sons, but also some things prior. Uh, So let's get a picture here. Leviticus is the background for these verses. We learned that they were ordained as priests. That's Leviticus 8 and 9. Leviticus 8 gives you this lengthy ritual of what will happen. Leviticus 9 is the fulfillment of that ritual. But in Leviticus 10, two of the priests die. Unauthorized fire is offered. And two of the sons, Nadab and Abihu, are struck down by the judgment of the Lord. That means Aaron is no longer the high priest over four sons, but now only two. And if we back up, Aaron is descendant from a man named Amram. Aaron's brother Moses, these two feature in the book of Exodus. Moses is the mighty deliverer, right? And the author of the Pentateuch, the Torah. But Aaron and Moses, their father is Amram, and he comes from someone named Kohath. Kohath had several sons. Amram was one of them. Kohath is a descendant of Levi. When we speak about people who are Levites, we're talking about people who came from one of Jacob's sons who was named Levi. And so the Levites are descendants of Levi, and Levi had three sons. Tonight, when we hear about Gershonites, Kohathites, and Merarites, or Merarites, those are all descendants of these three. And they are ancestors of Aaron. And this little breakdown here reminds us of what Exodus and Leviticus has already given us. We just don't have all that information repeated in Numbers. I need to be reminded about that so I can make sense of some of this stuff. And so hopefully that's helpful for us to remind ourselves Jacob had a son named Levi. He had three sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And they are what are called in this text tonight the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites. Well, if if we could just follow the descent here... Aaron and Moses are Kohathites, aren't they? They don't descend from Gershon or Merari. They descend from Kohath. And that means the priests are Kohathites. But there are Kohathites who aren't priests. Why? Because there are other descendants of Kohath. There are Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. They've all got descendants. It's just not shown here. So there are Kohathites who aren't priests. Because there are descendants who don't come all the way through Aaron. So you can have, if you will, the large group of Levites. 
Then the three descending lines, Gershonites, Kohathites, and Merarites, and then you can have this little subgroup. And they're a very unique group. They're the Aaronic priests, descendant from Aaron. And the reason we need to know this is because Aaron has two sons, and that's not very many people to do all the kind of work needed in and around the tabernacle. And so the priests are going to have some help so that when they travel or when things need to be maintained or the tabernacle perimeter needs to be guarded, Aaron won't have to depend on Eliezer and Ithamar to do it all. So it's not just three people like holding down the whole maintenance of the tabernacle. You actually have a series of Levitical lines here that are going to be given different places to sleep and camp and different duties. The various duties of the priests are not highlighted in chapter 3 tonight as much as their role to guard. So what I've tried to do tonight is show you what we're going to see in just a moment, putting these various descendants of Levi around the tabernacle. Uh, Let's look in verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest that they may minister to him. Just think about that for a moment. So verse 6 says that they might minister to him. Now that doesn't mean non-priests are going into the holy place. That doesn't mean non-priests or non-high priests are going into the most holy place. It just means that Aaron's work to guard the tabernacle, to teach the people, and to do various other responsibilities and travel, it is not all on Aaron and his two sons that remain. The tribe of Levi will have descendants to minister to Aaron. He's going to have help. They, in verse 7, will especially keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. You heard that right. They shall be put to death by the Levites. These various clans, and I'm calling the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites clans of the tribe of Levi, they have a guarding role. What if we thought about them as embodying the work that Adam should have been faithful to do in the Garden of Eden? I've tried to draw some Edenic parallels to the tabernacle reality before, especially the eastern entrance. Well, one of the roles that Adam was to to perform was to subdue and exercise dominion over the elements of creation. And a creeping thing comes into the garden, distorts the word of God, leads astray the woman and then the man. And all of a sudden, in their disobedience and their shame, their eyes are opened, they hide among the trees, They have not kept clean God's sanctuary. And then when they are expelled, a fiery cherubim, fiery cherubim with swords, guard the way into Eden. This is a kind of template in Genesis 2 and 3 that is worked out in some capacity in the life of Israel. It's as if the Levitical lines are engaging in the guarding and even putting to death if necessary and subduing any who seek to breach the holy place of God. 
So while the other tribes have males 20 and over that are going to be fighting in the promised land, the Levitical priests will be guarding the sacred place of God. We're told here in verse 10, they shall, if any outsider comes near, they shall put him to death. This doesn't only mean a foreigner among the Gentiles that enters the camp of Israel and says, I'm going to go and take something, one of the furnishings. I hear there's valuable things inside. I'm going to try to go and rob or steal, whatever. This would apply not just to those coming into Israel's camp from the outside. This would include Israelites. This would include non-priests who would seek to do among the furnishings and holy places of God what was only for the priests to do. These are guardians. When I think about the church of Jesus Christ and how we are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, according to 1 Peter 2, I think about the importance of the guardian role that we all have in the work of the gospel and in the message of the gospel and the importance of guarding against false teaching. Think of the kind of guardian capacities that the new covenant saints have. And even the role that elders have being set apart, according to Titus 1, to exercise sound doctrine and rebuke those who oppose it. There is an importance, a continuity from the old and into the new covenant to recognize the role of what is sacred and holy among the people of God that ought to be kept sacred and treated as holy and guarded because this is of God. The worship of God and the gospel of Christ These things matter. We might even consider the role of church discipline to be a kind of thing that relies on these Old Testament ideas of treating as sacred and keeping as clean and pure what can easily be defiled with unrepentant sin. That in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, you ought to have expelled the immoral brother from among you. Not because the rest of them were perfect in Corinth, they weren't. It's just to say that while there are saints in Corinth, there are also unrepentant people who ought not to think that they are okay. And that in my confession to Christ and, you know, whatever I profess, none of that is really contradicted by the life that I would be living. No, instead, the Corinthians needed to take seriously the gathering of the people of God and the things of God. So I think that these are the kind of principles that you see at work, not just in the Old Testament, but surface strongly in the new covenant life of the believer. And then in verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The firstborn who opens the womb, this is a way of saying, well, when people are giving birth and it's their first child and it's a male, that's the firstborn son. And he's saying here, I am taking the Levites in place of the firstborn among the Israelite tribes. You'll say, well, wait, why was that? Why would that need to matter? Why would that matter? Because the Israelite nation is God's firstborn son and the firstborn sons of the households represent that truth. And they were redeemed through Egypt, the, uh, the 10th plague. And now they ought to devote themselves to the Lord in place of that. God will set apart the tribe of Levi so that the firstborn sons of the people of Israel that aren't Levites won't have to work at the tabernacle, so to speak. It's as if God is setting apart that tribe in place. So that's what that means. It's a, it's a replacement uh, principle here. 
And in verse 13, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Well, this is God claiming here with this I am the Lord statement that by his authority and his will, the firstborn of Israelites tribes have been consecrated to him. And he says, I will now take the tribe of Levi in place of that. The Levites will serve me on behalf of the people of Israel. In verse 14, and the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai saying, list the sons of Levi by father's houses and by clans, every male from a month old and upward you shall list. It's perplexed people that he says from a month old and upward. There's no explanation of why that line is given. Though some speculation among scholars is that it could be the result of um, the infant mortality rate in the ancient world. And that a month old and up uh, is where they would want to start their count. So back to verse 15. Every male... A month old and upward, you shall list. So every male among Levi's tribes, or clans rather. So Moses listed them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And these were the sons of Levi by their names. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And these are the names of the sons of Gershon by their clans. I don't have these up here. But if Gershon's sons were listed, they'd be right here, Libni and Shimei. And the sons of Kohath by their clans, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And the sons of Merari by their clans, Mali and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites by their father's houses. So the way I think about this is Levi is the tribe, and then these various clans and households receive attention. And the first that's going to receive attention is Gershon's line, the Gershonites. If you ever want to know someone's descendants based on somebody's name, just add ites to it, okay? That's, that's as simple as the Bible gets. Gershonites, Kohathites, Merarites, 90% of the time you'll be right on, okay? There might be an exception every now and then. Now in verse uh, 21, to Gershon belong the clan of the Libnites and the clan of the Shemites. These are the clans of the Gershonites. Their listing according to the number of all males from a month old and upward was 7,500. So what they're doing is they're counting the males that are alive from Gershon. And it tells us in verse 23 where these people are going to camp. The clans of the Gershonites were to camp behind the tabernacle on the west, with Eliasaph, the son of Lael, as chief of the father's house of the Gershonites. And the guard duty of the sons of Gershon and the tent of meeting involved the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court that's around the tabernacle, and the altar and its cords, all the service connected with these. So the Gershonites have a guard duty and responsibilities that will even include several features of the tabernacle. Now the dotted line around the tabernacle represents the courtyard outline. And so the eastern entrance, where the priests and Moses are, the eastern entrance is that screen of the courtyard. And then immediately following that, if you keep going um, from that eastern entrance, you'll get to the holy place and its entrance. That's probably the extent of those inner screens. I think a a different uh, um, description or a different responsibility is going to be given for the innermost veil in just a moment. In verse 27, to Kohath belonged the clan of the Amramites. And if you look at this, Kohath, well, here's Amram. What are his descendants? The Amramites. It's like, am I a Kohathite? 
If I'm Aaron or if I, or am I an Amramite? Well, you're an Amramite and a Kohathite. I mean, it just depends on which level you're looking at. In verse 27, it says, and the clan of the Izharites, and the clan of the Hebronites, and the clan of the Uzielites, these are the clans of the Kohathites. According to the number of all the males from a month old and upward, there are 8,600 keeping guard over the sanctuary. The clans of the sons of Kohath were to camp on the south side of the tabernacle. So there you have them, Kohathites. And you have the Gershonites on the west, Kohathites on the south. In verse, 20, in verse 30, with Elizaphan, the son of Uziel, as chief of the father's house of the clans of the Kohathites. And their guard duty involved the ark, the table, the lampstand. All of those are golden. The golden ark of the covenant. The table of bread. And the lampstand, the golden lampstand. And then when it says the altars, I think this means both the golden altar of incense inside the holy place and then the bronze altar of sacrifice in the courtyard. Then it says the vessels of the sanctuary with which the priests minister and the screen. And that, uh, that likely means the innermost uh, screen or veil in front of the most holy place. All the service connected with these. In verse 32, And Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest was to be chief over the chiefs of the Levites and to have oversight of those who kept guard over the sanctuary. So what we've noticed is, okay, Levi has some descendants. The Gershonites, they're on the west. The Kohathites, they're on the south. And we would expect then the Merarites to be next. In verse 33, To Merari belong the clan of the Merarites and the clan of the Mushites. These... I'm sorry, the clan of the Malites and the clan of the Mushites. These are the clans of Merari. They're listing, according to the number of all the males from a month old and upwards, so how many do we have from their line? 6,200 from that clan. And the chief of the father's house of the clans of Merari was Zuriel, the son of Abihel. They were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle. And the appointed guard duty of the sons of Merari involved the frames of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle is made of wood. It's a wooden framed structure overlaid with various skins and coverings. So these frames, the frames of the tabernacle, are those various bars and pillars and bases that are mentioned next. And all their accessories, all the service connected with these. Also the pillars around the court with their bases and pegs and cords. You know what this means? The curtained courtyard border and perimeter. That also belongs to their responsibility. In verse 38... Those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east. And remember, the eastern placement is the most interesting part. Because last week we noticed how Judah's tribe was on the east. And Judah's the tribe that is the royal tribe from which Christ Jesus will be born. Well, here on the east are the specific subgroup known as the priests. It says, before the tent of meeting, toward the sunrise, camped Moses and Aaron and his sons guarding the sanctuary itself to protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was put to death. All those listed among the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron listed at the commandment of the Lord by clans, all the males from a month old and upward, were 22,000. And so there is this summary statement uh, that we've just been given, trying to put together all these groups. So let's make a couple broad observations. We've seen the Gershonites, Kohathites, and Merarites give attention, be given attention. The west, the south, and the north. 
And they all have different responsibilities when it comes to guarding and later even transporting different tabernacle vessels. But tracing the Kohathites through Amram, Aaron, Moses, and Aaron's sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, they get a unique placement. Yes, they're Kohathites, but they don't stay on the south. Because they're associated with Aaron, they are priestly. So here's what we got to keep in mind. And I don't, I don't want to complicate things because there is a lot here to think through. All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. And that, that alone, keeping that clear, is super helpful with Numbers 3. Because you've got Levites in the innermost concentric ring around the tabernacle. But only those Levites which are priests are on the eastern side. So on the eastern side of the tabernacle, the royal tribe and the priests, the tribe from which the king will come and the mediators for Israel. Now, in the big storyline of the Bible, it will be the Lord Jesus who embodies both the royal and priestly work to lead us back into Eden. In other words, if anybody's going to ascend to the presence of the Lord through the tabernacle, they've got to go through the kingly tribe and the priesthood. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is both king and priest. He is the one, if you will, who stays the sword of the cherubim of Eden. Who says, through me, priest and king, you come. So it is theologically significant that the priests aren't like randomly scattered around or Moses say to the priests, you know, it doesn't really matter where you guys camp, anywhere you want, actually, anywhere you want, you know, mix it up every time we camp, new place on rotation. No, they're on the eastern side. And this is God's command through Moses to them. You get to camp on the east. So the priests and Moses and then the tribe of Judah among those other two that are there too, Issachar and Zebulun, they receive those placements. Now, when you're counting up all of these Levitical males a month and, and older, how many do we have? Well, we have 22,000. Okay, well, if there's supposed to be a Levite for every firstborn of the, the sons of Israel, does it equal? Well, no. So a little problem is introduced. That's what the rest of Numbers 3 is going to give you. Because if there are more firstborn sons of Israel than there are Levite males, how are you going to reckon with that? Because the idea is the Levites will one for one replace the firstborn sons of Israel. And therefore they will be the tribe sufficiently serving and mediating for the people. Well, here's how the rest of this works. I know you're, on, you're waiting with bated breath. Here we go. Verse 40. And the Lord said to Moses, list all the firstborn males of the people of Israel from a month old and upward, taking the number of their names. And you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the cattle of the people of Israel. So Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males, according to the number of names from a month old and upward as listed, were 22,273. Well, you know, I don't like doing a lot of math on the board, but uh, here's just a little bit. If there are 22,273 firstborn males among the tribes, and there are only 22,000 Levite males a month and upward, then we need 273 more Levites or something needs to be done on behalf of the people of Israel. How is this going to measure out? There's a difference of 273. 
So here is the plan. These parents of these 273 firstborn sons of Israelites, who aren't Levites, they ought to dedicate their sons to the Lord. But there is a way you can dedicate something else in place of your son. You can offer, you can offer money. In the book of Leviticus and Exodus, there are shekels that you can offer in place of a person. In other words, you can say, I want to dedicate my son to the work of the tabernacle, but because we are not a Levitical family, my son's not working at the tabernacle. So in place of that, in order to show my devotion to the Lord and my eagerness for my son to serve for the glory of God, I offer this price in his place. It will stand in for him. So what they're going to do is offer a price for each of these 273 leftover Israelites. Everybody with me? Now the price is five shekels a head, okay? So here we go. Verse 44. Take the Levites. Well, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord in verse 46. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. And if you multiply that, it equals 1,365 shekels total. So you shall take them, he says in verse 47, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras. I don't know what that means. No one really knows what that means. Um, shekel is easier to wrap your head around than a gera. But it says, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. Pause. There are 22,000 Levites. That takes care of 22,000 of that top number there of those Israelite firstborn sons. But the rest of the 273 will be given a redemption price. Five shekels per head. And that money is to be given to Aaron. It's like you're giving those 273 to Aaron. But instead of those actual physical lives, you're giving an amount. Now, I know it might seem weird to you that you're like labeling a firstborn son five shekels. Like, you know, do we want to really put a price on somebody's head? I don't want us to overthink that as if it's some kind of quality or evaluation of their humanity. It is a way of saying you're not giving your actual children, you're giving something in their place and an amount must be given. So here it is, five shekels per head. Give the money to Aaron. It's the redemption price. Verse 49, so Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those redeemed by the Israel Levites. That means 273. That's that number that was over. In verse 50, from the firstborn of the people of Israel, he took the money. Here's the total. If you multiply five shekels times 273, you'll get 1,365 shekels by the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Okay, well, so what just happened? What did we just go through in Numbers chapter 3? Well, what we did was we listened to the Lord say, I have consecrated all of Israel's firstborn sons, but I will take the tribe of Levi in their place. The rest of the Old Testament will have Levitical priests and Levites, not priests, working and transporting and dealing with all the tabernacle. How is it that they are set apart when God had consecrated all the firstborn sons? Numbers chapter 3 explains why. God has taken the tribe of Levi 
in place of all the firstborn sons of Israel's non-Levite tribes. And when there was a little bit of a discrepancy, a difference of 273 more Israelite firstborn sons, their parents paid a redemption price so that, if you will, everything balances in the end. So that in Numbers chapter 3, you have a nation having priests mediating on their behalf, working not just in the holy place, the most holy place, as Aaron's sons, but even the non-Aaron sons, these other Levitical lines and clans, they're engaging in tabernacle care and guardianship. That if anybody were to seek to breach or damage the holy things of God, they are to be put to death. The idea of redemption is important in the Bible. The book of Exodus introduces it to us profoundly. God is the redeemer of Israel. Something is done in order to bring out. And um, when you see the uh, plagues poured out, the Lord is redeeming Israel out of Egypt as his firstborn son. When we think of redemption, it is legitimate to think of something being given or some act being performed in place of or price being offered on behalf of. Think of Hosea. On a micro level, the individual story of Hosea where he redeems his bride in Hosea chapter 3. Or think of the language of Jesus' ministry where he's come to be a ransom for sinners. He's come to be their redeemer. And the price offered, if you will, or the the, uh, substitutionary work in the place of sinners is Jesus himself satisfying their judgment. Uh, The judgment due them. Jesus is the redeemer. We were not redeemed with shekels, okay? There was not like a, well, you know, here's, here's the various sinners and image bearers and Christ going to the cross, you know, what's the shekel amount? No, the spotless lamb is offered in our place. So when something like redemption or price is featured in a context, you might say, well, what was being offered? Well, shekels here in Numbers 3, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God in the Gospels. So there is an escalation, a glorious escalation of offering and substitutionary work so that we might be what God has called us to be in him. Not only does the tribe of Levi feature for the remainder of the Old Testament because the priests come from them, you find the Levites important in the New Testament. I know we just finished Luke this morning, and even though I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 1, this is not me restarting everything. Uh, in Luke chapter 1, what I want you to listen to is it says in Luke chapter 1-5, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth... They are descendants of Aaron. They are, let's just back it up, they are Kohathites. So you have descendants from Aaron, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who will give birth to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a Levite, a Kohathite, a descendant of Aaron. We can be specific like that. But John the Baptist, just like the tribe of Levi in the Old Testament has come to prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. This is why the book of Hebrews takes careful effort in chapter 7 to highlight Jesus not being of the tribe of Levi, but being a priest like Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest at the same time. 
You see, in the Old Testament, things were distinct. You had the tribe of Judah. From them will come David and David's sons. Then from a different tribe, you have the priests. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus embodies both roles, but he's not from two tribes. You know, away with that nonsense. That's not the idea. In Hebrews chapter 7, we're told that Jesus as our perfect high priest is not from the tribe of Levi. He is from a tribe from which no priest had descended. He's from Judah's tribe. So here's what we're told in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 4. See how great this man was, Melchizedek, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Jesus, I'm sorry, Melchizedek, does not have his descent from them. He received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had promises. It's beyond dispute. The inferior is blessed by the superior. Now, the argument in Hebrews 7 is that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And Jesus is like Melchizedek. Jesus is superior. And if you track Abraham, if we go a little further back, Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Levi. So imagine, if you will, the writer says, all the priests from Levi... In the loins of Abraham. And Abraham pays homage and deference to a greater superior Melchizedek. He says, it's like all along the Levitical priesthood was designed to be inferior to the greater priesthood Jesus would embody. It's as if in Abraham, all the Levitical priests that would come from him were acknowledging the superiority of Melchizedek. And the writer says, Jesus has a priesthood like that. Jesus is greater. So we don't fret because we can't trace Jesus' descent from Levi's tribe. That was never the point. The point that was that Numbers chapter 3 would, would describe for us the unique roles and responsibilities of a temporal guardianship that the Levites would have. And that in the plan of God, in the biblical redemptive span of things, The Levitical tribe and all of their priestly work would give way to the finished work of Christ, who is king and priest like Melchizedek. And that in Christ Jesus, we would be a royal priesthood, guarding the gospel and protecting the people of God, exercising church discipline and accountability, seeking to affirm and guard the holy things of the gospel and the word of God, treasuring sound doctrine and removing false teaching. In other words, caring about the kind of sanctuary which we are as a church. You see, we're not in the days of the tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled. And now you and I are the living sanctuary. And I know we use language like, you know, we're going to church this morning or we're going to church tonight. And we all know what we mean by that. We need to very precisely keep in mind, though, you and I are the church. We are dwelt, uh, dwelt by and set apart by the Spirit of God. So we care for one another. We are the sanctuary of God. We are holy and called to be holy. And therefore, our growth, our holiness, our care for one another... All of this takes to an escalated stage what's foreshadowed in the lives of the Gershonites and the Kohathites and the Merarites and and the sons of Aaron the priests. All of that is preparing for the age of the church of the Lord Jesus, Jew and Gentile believers in Christ, 
in the new covenant with him. And just like these tribes would be wrong to look at each other and Asher say to Gad, I wish I was on that side and I wish I had those responsibilities there. Or that the priests would be wrong to say of the Gershonites, I wish we weren't on the eastern side. I wish we had this over there. When the Lord, by his design, designs the body with eyes and ears and hands and feet and none should despise the other nor say of itself, I'm of no value to the body for just behold the design of God here. This is the precursor to the new covenant community where everything has its proper place and contribution to the life of the people of God. All of them keeping in mind, none of us are at the center. It's always God. And this is such good news, friends. None of us exist to make much of our own name. We exist for Christ to be the center of our communal life together. All of us needing one another by the very design of God. The hand needing the eye and the eye, the ear and the ear, the foot. All with different responsibilities and all in the communal life of God doing what ought to be for the glory of God above all things. Friends, that's what we were made for. So let's press into that and notice these various ways in which the Old Testament prepares the way for those good teachings of the new covenant.